Eisen, and this is Ring Talk. And today's episode, we have one of the all-time great fights to discuss, one of the most controversial fights of all time. There are a lot of fights that have been controversial. And, you know, still people talk about them. The second alley list and fight was controversial. Jack Johnson, Jess Willard was controversial. First Dempsey-Willard fight was controversial. This fight may be the most controversial of all time. It took place, and you can see it on YouTube. I hope you can find a better, uh, you probably can find a better version than I saw. It was a fight to the finish between world lightweight champion Joe Gans, the immortal Joe Gans, a fighter without a flaw. And he was called uh, the old master, which he was. He, he was brilliant. And his challenger was the abysmal brute. That's what Jack London called his challenger, Oscar Matthew Battling Nelson. He was also known as the Durable Dane. Nelson uh, is the dirtiest fighter in boxing history. He's also the most bigoted, using the N-word on, on uh, Gans many times, spitting on him, kicking him, kneeing him in the testicles. He'd fought black fighters before Nelson, and he, you know, he'd knocked him out. He'd stomp on their head with his foot. Had to be stopped from urinating on them. I mean, he he was just a vile, evil man. And he said, if you think I was tough when I beat white guys, wait till I beat these N-words. You know, it's better than sex. Just, just, just see them writhing on the ground. So he was a despicable, vile, vicious, evil uh, cur. Um, and he was born in Copenhagen, Denmark in... Um, what year was Battling Nelson born? He was born in 1882, June 5th. And Joe Gans was born September 25th, 1874. And his father was a baseball player, uh, Joseph Cephas Butts. Cephas Butts, S-A-I-F-U-S-S. Not sure how to pronounce that, Butts. But uh, we don't know who his mother was. The father didn't want to raise a child. Uh, he couldn't. He had to work to make money. There was no one home. So he went to a couple, the Gants, G-A-N-T, and in particular Maria Gant, was really Joe Gant's surrogate mother, but it became his mother. She loved him, and she instilled all the good qualities in him. And she adopted him at the age of four, and that was the one he looked at um, as his mother. He had a lot of tragedy in his life. You know, he married... At a young age, and his son died early on of of um, I have the exact time here of um, tuberculosis, and then his wife died. Yeah, his wife Mula Mary Bula Gans died of consumption tuberculosis uh, on the eighteenth uh, of March, eighteen ninety six, and. And this is why he wasn't able to make weight for his first fight for the lightweight title of Frank Ern. Um, Scrapbook Boxing. Peace to you, Lou. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Great coming. Looking forward to your book coming. I'm working on one as well. Great accomplishments of Black Fighters. Well, I look forward to your book. Uh, basically, uh, Scrapbook, I'm waiting for my friend Tony G to send his final edits on my first chapter of my book. I'll get back to this fight in a sec. Uh, the book covers 25 controversial fights. And the first one is... 1772, which we know to be the first fixed fight. That was actually where people admit it. They got it. They, they, it was without, it was irrefutable. And so other fights are much later on in boxing history. So once I get that back, 
and I had a couple more photos. I sent it off to my publisher, and it's done. So this fight was a big fight. Gans was a brilliant fighter. Thank you, Scarborough. Gans was a brilliant fighter. He was a phenomenal puncher. He, you know, a friend of his, Harry Lenny, was his, would spar with him. But he said he would go to fights and watch guys that Gans was fighting. And it was about to fight like a month later, a couple months later. And Gans would watch the guy. And sometimes he'd watch him for a minute. You'd sit there and watch him. And after a minute, you'd go, okay, I got it. And he'd leave. And his friend would say, what'd you get? He said, when he throws a left hand, uh, he tips his left, he tips his head to the left. So when he does that, or when he throws the right hand, excuse me, like this, he tips his head to the left. So I'm going to show him a, um, uh, a problem. I'm going to trap him, which is what I'm going to do. I'm going to show him an opening. He's going to go for it. I'll, I'll slip under his right hand, and I can either slip to my left, catch him with the left coming in, or, you know, he'll do it, and I'll hit him in the belly and then hit him in the head. And it took Gans to not – it only took him around to knock this guy out. So Gans knew what he was doing in the ring. Sometimes he'd watch a fighter for four or five rounds. Gans was perfect. He very rarely got hit. He was brilliant at laying traps for other fighters. He also, this was an era when fighters threw their punches roundhouse. They threw them around. And Gans had a man, uh, it was in the William Gildea book, um, who, who, Caleb, who he worked for in the fish market in Baltimore when he was young. But the guy also had a boxing gym. And he told Gans the best way to hit a guy with power and really do damage is to do it in straight line. So all these other boxers at the time were throwing roundhouse punches, not Gans. Gans' punches went four to six inches, and he threw them straight. So if you're thinking about it, when a guy's coming at you, like battling Nelson or Frank Earn, whoever they were, and they're throwing wide punches, and Gans will just step in with a straight shot, one or two straight shots, and that's all it would take. Gans had in his mind almost a mental map of, of the vital points on a person's body. So he had the chin, the liver, the solar plexus, he knew where to hit a guy and do maximum damage, side of the head, nose. And this was a fight, you know, Gans had won the lightweight title from Frank Ern. He first fought Frank Ern, and he had to quit after 12 rounds because he received an accidental headbutt from Ern. But the cut over his eye, it was on his eyelid, and it was really bad, and they couldn't stop it. And the doctor in his corner said, you're going to lose your eyesight if it keeps going. So he quit. And, of course because he was black and had no rights, he, he, he was called a coward. They said, typical black fighter, which is complete BS, but that's what they said at the time about him. So he tried to get a rematch of Earn, but Earn knew how good he was. And it was an even fight. Earn was a really good fighter, but they, he couldn't get Earn back in the ring. So his manager, Al Herford, who was, it's hard to describe, he was one of the most vile, evil, vicious, racist managers ever. I mean. He, he um, you know, he made Don King look like Albert Schweitzer. I mean, he was just a vile man who abused all his fighters, all his black fighters. You know, Gans made in his career probably 100, 150 grand, and, and Herford took up to 70 to 80 grand of it. The rest Gans usually wasted on, on uh, uh, horse racing, which he could never pick a winner, or, or 
gambling at the tables, which he, at dice, and he was terrible at that. So, you know, he contri contributed to his own misery, but he didn't get all of his money. You know, Hereford would only pay him 15, 20, 30% of his actual pangs, and there's not much he could do about it because when he quit Hereford and left, Hereford blackballed him and he couldn't fight. The interesting thing about Gans, by the way, is he drew the color line. He had fought several black fighters, one in particular, Dave Hawley. And after that, he said, I can understand why guys don't want to fight. I said, I'm not doing this again. He said, black fighters are too skilled and too good, and it's just too much effort for no reward. The money we're promised is never there. And the comments about us after are terrible. So what's the point? So Gans had tremendous uh, um, self-confidence, but he also had a tremendous calm about him. He was very self-controlled. So when people were bigoted to him or racist towards him, he was able to hold his own. There's a famous story in Maryland where he's waiting at a bus stop and an officer came and said, what are you doing here, N-word? And he said, I'm just waiting for the bus officer. How dare you talk to me like that and hit him with the billy clubs that were kinds. And he held his arms up to block. And then a couple other people came over, grabbed the officer and said, that's Joe Gans, the lightweight champion. Well, he can't talk to me that way. And he started to hit him again. They grabbed the officer again. They go to court and the officer said, he jumped on me with a knife and he tried to stab me and he punched me a hundred times and he kicked me. And he kept going on and lying and lying. And Gans said, your honor, if I can interject, I'm a professional prize fighter. I hurt people for money. If I really wanted to hurt him, I could have done so. It would have taken two punches. I would have left him unconscious on the pavement. And the judge said, you know, you're an N-word. You don't have a right to speak in this court. I find you guilty. Pay the fine, which is five bucks. So that's that's what happened back then. It happened all the time. From 1899, 1899 to 1918, the end of the First World War, over 2,500 African-Americans were lynched. There's never a reason to do that, but these were just innocent people in the wrong place at the wrong time and were lynched because of the color of their skin. When I say lynched, I mean hung uh, or tied up and disemboweled or set on fire while they're alive. This was done to to black workers working on railroads who didn't want to work for one-tenth the wages that other workers were getting, decided to quit, and then were hunted down and killed. So this was quite common back then. And a guy like Gans was taking his life in his hands wherever he went. The remarkable thing about Gans was he was such a gentleman in the ring, and he was such a gentleman outside the ring, that white fans started to, to um, uh, cheer for him. So... He, uh, he grows up in, uh, in Maryland. The fight that we're talking about takes place September 3rd, 1906. It was the first fight to be billed as the fight of the century, and it was, it was um, promoted by the great Tex Record. Tex Record didn't give a damn about blacks, never did, couldn't care less about the rights of Joe Gans. He just wanted to make it a racial fight because he thought it would attract more money. And Gans never looked at it in the sense that, and neither did Joe Jack Johnson, he didn't look at it that he was defending his title for his race. It's money. All fighters like that even today. They're just fighting for money. Glory, yes, but they just wanted to get paid. And by the time he got to Goldfield, Nevada, where the fight was held, he was broke, Gans. He was impoverished. And he met a gambler there named Larry Sullivan who said, I'll manage you because he left Al Herford. And Sullivan was uh, known as Shanghai Larry. He would capture people or, or get give sailors or men out in Seattle 
in San Francisco, free room and board. When they were asleep, he'd have somebody kidnap them and put them on a ship to work as a sailor. So he was a scamboog, as Joe Frazier would say, a crook, a criminal. And when he met Gans, he thought, here's a guy down on his luck. He needs the money. I'm going to fleece him, but good. And then he just started to really like Gans. So he had to lend Gans to $5,000 money to put down to show that he was serious for the fight. He had to give him another 5000 you know, to uh, – for training camp expenses. So he had to assure Gans money. And he just said to Gans, you know, listen, I have all my friends betting on you. And Gans said, I'm broke, but if I had a nickel, I'd bet on me too. And he said, great, because if you don't win, you're going to be strung up. I'm not kidding you. You will be lynched. And so there were newspapers like up in Alaska, for instance, that said if Gans throws to fight, and he may very well do that, he should be lynched alive along with his family. These were chilling things to appear in newspapers, but they were commonplace. The reason why there was always a question mark about Gans being on the level is when he first fought Frank Earn, as I said, he quit after 12 rounds because of a headbutt. And Earn thought, great, don't have to fight him again. And he wanted to fight him again. Gans reeled off like another 19 victories. And then he fought Terry McGovern. And McGovern was a short little guy. He was a featherweight champ, eventually a lightweight champ. He was a force of nature. But before the fight, Sam Harris, his manager, and Al Herford, uh, I mean, three or four months before the fight, Al, Al Herford, Gans' manager, got together, and so did Gans and McGovern, and they decided to throw the fight. And the reason to throw the fight was for two reasons. Make more money betting on it, obviously, and uh, to get Gans another shot at the lightweight title. If Earns reads the paper that Gans lost to one round, um, thank you, Scrapbook, uh, that... Um, He'll be more likely to fight him. So he regretted it forever after. He threw the fight. He goes down, I think, seven times in round one, goes down a couple more times in round two, and he gets up and he's smiling and hugging, hugging Terry McGovern. He should have destroyed McGovern at that point because he's a much bigger man and he's a much stronger man. But it worked. He did get a title fight, but it took him almost three years, like two and a half years later, he got a chance to fight Frank Gern. He got back boxing banned in Chicago until the Dempsey-Tunney fight. But the thing about that was, of course, Gans forever after, like he eventually admitted that he did it, and it was held against him. Nothing happened to Terry McGovern. He didn't, uh, uh, you know, not, no blame was uh, situated on him at all for what he had done. And, and he was just as guilty as Gans was. So Gans beats Earn, and... He also beat, the same year he beat um, 1906, just before he beats um, Nelson, he fights Mike Sullivan for the World Welterweight title, and he wins that too. So he's actually a double champion. So he goes into the fight, and because he was black, Billy Nelson, the manager of, um, of uh, battling Nelson, and a, a virulent bigot in his own right, makes all these ludicrous demands that Gans has no choice but to live up to. Al Herford wasn't there to protect his interests, but even when Al Herford was there early in his career, he never protected his interests. Gans had to fight with metaphorical handcuffs. He was so good, a lot of people wouldn't fight him. So the, here was the deal. My guy will fight you, will fight your guy Gans, but your guy's got to let my guy last eight to ten rounds. Because if it goes too quickly, the fans will go berserk. And my guy's got to get some punches in and draw some blood. And finally, after eight, nine, ten rounds, 
his manager, Hertford, would say, okay, Joe, go get him. And he would go out and promptly knock him out. In fact, uh, all the abuse, verbal and written abuse, he received before the second Earn fight. Um, and Earn called him a coward. He quit before he'll quit again. He's black. All black fighters are cowards. He went out and knocked out Earn in a minute and 20 seconds. He just said, I'm going to kill him. You know, I, I'll, I'll show you. If that's what you think, you're going to pay for it. And then prepare to back your words up. So with Billy, with Billy Nolan, not Billy Nelson, my mistake, Billy Nolan, the manager of uh, Battling Nelson said, here's what we're going to do. You know how today fighters, the fights on Saturday, they'll have to weigh in Friday. And fighters will weigh in with just a towel around them or just in their underwear. Well, back then, they wanted him to weigh in three times the day of the fight. This is in brutally hot Goldfield, Nevada. And this was so he couldn't rehydrate. Uh, Nelson had to do it too, but Nelson never had a, a problem making weight. Gans did. Gans walked around as a welter. So he goes to the scales and he's got to be wearing his full gloves and he was trunks, shoes, socks, and he weighs in at 132 pounds. That's at 12. And he's got to do it again at 130. And then at 315, 15 minutes before the fight starts. All three of them do, but it didn't really matter because Nelson just walked on and walked off. And Gan said, we didn't see the weight. What's the weight? And his manager, Billy Nolan, said, shut up, you N-word. You don't, you're not a human. You don't have the right to speak here. And what could Gans do? Nothing he could do. So the guy managing them, Larry Sullivan, didn't know what it was to be a boxing manager. He looked at it from a financial perspective. So he didn't know that he could stand up for his fighters' rights. And finally... When they get to the ring for the instructions and then they pose for the pre-fight pictures, Nolan says, oh, Gans didn't have wraps on. He should have had on his wraps. we got to do all the weighing and over again. And Tex Rickard said, no, the weigh-in's done. And he said, no, got to do all three again and delay the fight. And Rickard said, it's a full stadium. We delayed the fight. There's going to be a riot. We'll be killed. And sorry. And, and Gans said to Nolan, fine, I won't wear wraps. And once again, you know, Nolan looks at him and says, you're an N-word. Where do you get off speaking to me? And it's the only time that people can remember again says, you know what? You're going to pay for those words. I'm going to take it out on Nelson. And so the fight begins. And, you know, the money, it was disparaging the money because, um, not disparaging, excuse me, dispirited. Nelson was guaranteed 22500 He got almost 35000 And Gans earned 11000 although he was a champion. And out of that 11000 he had to pay ten back to Larry Sullivan. So, you know, he didn't have the money for side bets either. He got some money to make a side bet, but Nelson's people wouldn't take it. Yes, Tiger Flowers, you're right, Scott, but Tiger Flowers defeated Grab in 1926 before Dempsey... Uh, faced Tunney, uh, 1927 in Chicago. You're right. Sorry about that. Yeah, that, that, that's also, I think, where he thumbed Greb as well. They both had eye surgery within a week of each other, Greb and Flowers, and both of them died. The same mob anesthetist gave them an overdose of ether, unfortunately. Um, there's a standing, the late Steve Lott said there's a standing uh, uh, offer on the table of like a million dollars for anyone who has actual film of Harry Greb fighting. Film did come up recently, found in a university basement in a canister of Greb training with Philadelphia Jack O'Brien. We don't have any film of him actually fighting in 
the ring. Although we know what fights of his were filmed. And of course, the fear now is, you know, they may have already disappeared from the original nitrate. So hopefully someone will find that soon. So the fight, the location was the Casino Amphitheater, Goldfield, Nevada. The referee was George Seiler, who was also a writer for Chicago newspaper. And one of the other people there was Bat Masterson, the, the outlaw, famous outlaw, or not outlaw, famous sheriff from the West and great sports writer. Bat Masterson, most people don't know, was Canadian. He's from Quebec, Bartholomew Masterson. And he became a sports writer for the New York Morning Telegram. In fact, he had one of my favorite lines. He said, everyone in life gets the same amount of ice. Everyone. The only difference is rich people get their ice in the summer, poor people get their ice in the winter. And he wrote, Gans should win, He's past his prime, but I think he has enough left in the tank to handle Nelson. And so Gans almost killed himself trying to get to the lightweight limit. And it, you know, eventually cost him his life because he wasn't well enough at that point after the fight, you know, and it wasn't too long after that he got tuberculosis. And uh, this was the first time where he sent home a text to his mother or telegraph, you know, a note saying, Mom, I'm bringing home the bacon with all the gravy on it. And that became a phrase used by by uh, many writers. When the fight started, Nelson rushed right off. You know, he just went nuts and went right at him and was throwing these wild punches. He was headbutting him through the whole fight. He, You know, he'd have him here when Nelson or when Gans would break loose, he'd kick him. He'd elbow him, he'd thumb him, he'd gouge him, he'd bite him. And George Tyler saw this, the referee saw this, and he, he would say to him, stop that, that's a foul. And Nelson just laughed, he, he didn't care. You're not, what can you do to me? I'm the white man, he's the black man. Problem was, wasn't really completely one of race. The problem was George Tyler knew that it was a full house, and if he disqualifies, Nelson, who committed 15 to 20 fouls around every round, if not more, right at the beginning, there's going to be a riot. People will be like, well, I saved up, you know, six, seven months for this fight, like a year's worth of wages in the last one round. So it wasn't like today where you'd have a great referee like Jack Reese would walk up to a guy and say, that's the first foul. And then he hits him low. That's the second one. Next time you lose a point after that, you're gone. They didn't do that back then. So they wanted to give the fans a full fight. So he came out and um, he was doing all these dirty tactics, but Gans, Gans was up to it. You know, uh, first round, he's, he breaks Nelson's nose. You know, he slips a right hand, throws a straight right, breaks Nelson's nose, hits him with the left hook to the chin and Nelson's knees buckle. Hits him again into the nose, knocks his teeth, some of his teeth out, hits him to the eye. You know, he keeps working on his eyes methodically. You know, he's working on his left eye now. So he keeps punching it and punching it and punching it and swelling it up, hitting him with vicious left hooks to the liver. And when Nelson comes in head first, he moves to his right and he hits him a right hook on his on his um, ear and on his left ear. Now, when you look at pictures of battling Nelson, especially a marriage picture of his photograph, you never see his left ear. He didn't want to show it because it was extremely cauliflowered, meaning there was a lot of calcium buildup on the ear. So 
he when Gans hit him, bang, he splits the ear open, calcium comes out, blood, gore, and then he hits him, you know, he starts hitting him on the other ear. He's bleeding from both ears. This is the first round. Broken nose, bleeding from both ears, blood coming out of his mouth. And Gans is just kicking the hell out of him. He's just standing there landing three punch combinations, five punch, six punch, seven punch. He's moving Nelson's head back and forth like a tetherball. Nelson's just a crude guy who'd go, sucks up the punishment and keeps coming forward, getting in close. He's willing to take 10 punches to land one. And when he lands one, he's lining it south of the border, you know, below the belt. He'll land it on the arms. He'll hit him in the back of the head. He'll knee him. But Nelson is taking a horrific beating. And people watching this are stunned. They're thinking, how much can a man take? This is the first round. First round ends. Nelson goes to his corner. He's sitting there. There's blood pouring out of his mouth. You know, he's missing teeth, his ear. You know, there was a guy whose job was to stand there at ringside, not on the apron, but below the apron on the ground, and just hand up the water bucket, hand up the stool, keep handing towels. And one of the other trainers said, we need you up here now. And his job was just to take a towel and just to try to put with his fingers Nelson's ear back together, you know, dry it with the towel, like get the blood off, you know, wash the water to wash the gore away, put some Vaseline on it and hold it there. But it made no difference. And Nelson's bristling sitting in the corner. He's like, oh, like he loves it. As he said, this he liked this better than sex. He loved this sitting in a corner bleeding like that. He felt alive. He was he felt like he was a real man. And he felt it was his duty to go beat this guy. And as he said before, you think I beat a white man bad. Wait till I fight a black guy. Wait till you see me fight black guys. And he couldn't, he despised Gans because of this color of his skin. And so they keep going at it. And then they, you know, they have the, the second round, third round. Gans, Nelson's missing and falls, falls all through the ropes. Gans reaches out, helps him up. And he takes his hand, and a couple rounds later, same thing, and Gans helps him up, and and uh, Nelson kicks him. The bell ends, and Nelson reaches out to kick him again. Gans kicks him back. They throw punches. It's the only time people remember in Gans' whole career where he actually responded to treatment like that. But he'd had enough. I mean, this guy is coming at him. He's thumbing him. He's using the, the laces to gouge his eyes. He's biting him. He's got his bite marks on him. He's kicking him. Um, because of Gans, they put a rule in that fighters had to bathe before fights because Gans wouldn't bathe or wash for weeks before a fight. He wanted to smell as rank as possible. And so Gans, or, or not Gans, Nelson wanted to smell as rank as possible, not Joe Gans, my mistake, sorry. And Nelson would come in and stink. Nelson would bathe in a vat of his own urine so he'd be even more reprehensible when he'd get into the ring to fight his opponent. In fact, long after he retired, when Dempsey fought Willard, they had these large bathtubs of lemonade that they were selling at the fight. It's Toledo, Ohio. It's over 100 degrees there, July 4th, 1919. And the morning of the fight, they find Battling Nelson had slept naked in the various lemonade tubs, so they couldn't use it. And uh, just a vile, bigot, idiot, moron, thug of a person. So... The fight goes on, and he just keeps hammering Nelson. Second round, he hammers him. He's beating him up more. Third round. Third, fourth round, Gans is just in complete control. He's throwing straight shots. He's using the shoulder roll. 
He's outthinking him. He's moving his head back to avoid punches by fractions of an inch. He's moving from side to side. He's forcing Nelson to lunge. And when he lunges, he leaves himself open. Gans comes inside with uppercuts, hits him with left hands. People can't believe Nelson is still on his feet. Neither can Gans. Gans is hitting him with shots that would drop most welter or middleweights. But Nelson's taking it. Fifth round. Fifth round of the fight. Nelson comes charging out headfirst, as he always did. Gans sidesteps him, hits him with a straight right to the chin, left hook to the chin, and another booming right that people could hear in, in the in the rafters. And Nelson goes down on all fours. And, you know, blood is pouring from his face. He's breathing heavily. It's fifth round. They're thinking, well, he's done. There's no way he gets up. He got up. He got up under a count of two. George Siler started to count, and he got up. He kept walking in. He kept getting pounded. His face was getting pounded. He was getting hurt. You know, by this point, his left eye is just about closed. This is the fifth round. And he still got his right eye. He's still going to keep fighting. Remember several years later when he fought Ad Wolgast, you know, and that fight ended in over 40 rounds. He... He had both eyes closed and just told his corner to turn him to where Wolgas was, where he took a hideous beating in that round, and the referee finally had to stop it. He was blind. So this is what was about to happen to him here. You know, sixth round, seventh round, and Gans. This is brutal heat. Goldfield, Nevada, but Gans is still going after him, hitting him, pounding him, you know, picking his shots, hitting him to the eyes, hitting him to the mouth, hitting him on his injured ear, pounding his liver incessantly. And Nelson's taking it. And he's coming in. He's landing a couple shots here and there on Gans. He hits Gans a couple of right hands to the head. You know, he hits him some shots to the body. He's hitting him on the arms. But he's also stomping on his feet. He's kneeing him. He's leaning into him with his shoulders. He's doing every dirty trick imaginable. And the referee, George Seiler, sees this. And he's warning him at times, cut it out. Don't do it. But he's still doing it. He's not, he's not listening to the referee because he's saying he can't disqualify me. This guy's black. He's got no rights. I'm white. I'm better. And before the fight, Nelson thought he was better as a human. Nelson claimed to be the world lightweight champion because it's just not logical. He said that, that uh, you could claim a black person could be a champ. And, you know, he thought his victory over Jimmy Brick gave him the world lightweight title. He said, Nelson, uh, um, uh, Gans had given it up after defeating Sullivan for the welterweight title, but that's simply not true. And Nelson uh, was a person who, who was just full of lies, never had any luck in business, just a terrible person, universally despised in the world of boxing. Um, I look at Nelson the same way I look at Ty Cobb in baseball, that for all his accomplishments, still a, a, a stain on the history of the sport. The sport could do without garbage like battling Nelson. So uh, the fact that he has a great nickname and he was nicknamed the abysmal brute and the durable Dane are one of the reasons for his popularity. Um, but he's coming after Gans with everything he has. And Gans just won't, you know, Gans is taking it all and he's showing tremendous calm, tremendous confidence, but also tremendous self-discipline. He's just, pounding the hell out of him and he's using his jab every time nelson comes forward he gets hit in the eyes with a jab and then a straight right hand not looping punches all nelson is throwing is looping punches gans is aiming for specific parts of nelson's body 
and he's landing continuously. And referee George Seiler said, you know, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, it's all Gans. Nelson is starting to work his way in, and he's starting to rally a bit. When I say rally, I don't mean winning a round. I mean rally that he is winning. He's landing more shots than he did before. That's how he's rallying. So he, he keeps going. But out, but in the 15th round, you know, they, they uh, George Hadley said if, if it was a 15-round fight like today, it would have been over because Gans would have been, would have been the unanimous decision victor. And so 15 rounds, 16 rounds, 17 three-minute rounds. They get to the 18th round, and Nelson goes all out in attack, and Gans sidesteps him and just catches him with six hard, quick shots in a row and down goes Nelson. And this time, he's really hurt. I mean, you could tell him shaking his head. His legs are rubbery. He, he feels it tremendously. And, you know, it's going to be a trial for him to continue. But somehow, by some miracle, and to the stunned incredulity of all, everyone in attendance, including Gans in Nelson's corner, Nelson gets up and he rushes and hangs on to him. He keeps holding on for the rest of the round because he's hurt. You know, if he, if he lets Gans get loose again, he'll get knocked out. And so the round ends. 19th, 20th round, Gans, Gans is pounding him. Come the 20th, 21st, 22nd, still all Gans. But Gans is an older man. He's tiring. It's in the hot sun. He wasn't allowed to rehydrate. He's taking water in between rounds, but it's still not enough. And at that point, Nelson stages a, a phenomenal rally. He starts pounding Gans. He starts pounding him to the body, headbutting him to the chin, into his face over and over and over, opening a cut over one of Gans' eyes and on one of his cheeks with the headbutts. He's hitting him with a scissors punch. Now Nelson threw a scissors punch, which was, a, which was a, I guess, an illegal punch, but uh, it, it was outlawed eventually. But it was a left hook to the liver. And, and when you land a shot, you know, you're landing it, you're turning it, and you're landing with these part of the knuckles. But he would land with these parts sticking out like this and he would hit you and he would do this you know i guess like that and squeeze your liver as he you know make, make it hurt more and guys you know were urinating blood for weeks after that he stopped a lot of fighters and he was using it on gans and the referee wasn't going to say anything because he's already headbutting him stomping on his feet biting him elbowing him using his shoulders uh you know putting him in a headlock and punching him and, and Gans just isn't responding. You know, he's realizing to himself, this is going to take a lot more from Nelson than what's going, you know, this is taking a lot out of his stamina. Here's the interesting part of this, of everything I'm babbling about. The 8,000 people, 7,960 people in attendance, they're all turned, they're all white, and they all start yelling and screaming for Gans. They love Gans, and they start booing Nelson. And they're screaming at the referee, disqualify him. Nelson, you're an a-hole. Nelson, I hate you. Nelson, I'm going to kill you. And usually it was the other way around. Gans would fight and people would say, you're a dead man, N-word. I'm going to kill you and your kids. I'm going to do this to you. And, you know, Gans, as all black fighters did back then, George Dixon, his friend who was the best man at his wedding and a Canadian and the first black man ever to win a world title, 
these guys had to fight knowing that not only were they going to get ripped off by their own manager, but that they faced being attacked by audience members, by, by guns, knives. I mean, Dixon and Gans had to worry because people in, the oppo- in his opponent's corner, when he would fight near there, they would bang them in the legs and the knees with, with metal pipes, baseball bats, other things, knives. And they both had tremendous scars. This is why Gans rarely fought off the ropes. Gans liked to keep the fight in the center of the ring. And the other reason, of course, is he could get more leverage in the center of the ring. So Gans, you know, was considered, Gans influenced every fighter that came after him. Every fighter. You have to understand this. He died in 1910. From 1910 till 2022, he influenced every fighter after. Shakur Stevenson, who's one of the most, if not the most skilled fighter on earth right now, along with Lomachenko and, and Alexander Usyk, he influenced them. A lot of things Shakur Stevenson is doing and has learned, whether he realizes it or not, are straight from Joe Gans, the shoulder roll, you know, sucking a guy in, having him use his own momentum against him to walk into a straight right hand. You know, he would throw that left hook to the liver, take a step back, catch you with the right hand to the chin and drop you. He would wait for you to make mistakes and he would force you to make mistakes by setting traps and have you walk into them. So Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard, Sugar Ray Robinson, all these fighters, great, great fighters that came after Joe Lewis, they were all influenced by Joe Gans. And, you know, one of my all-time favorite fighters, the great Art Hafey, the featherweight from from Halifax, who was rated number one in the world over the champion by Ring Magazine, he had the, one of the best left hooks to deliver of all time. But when you watch him, that's Joe Gans throwing that shot. That's how Gans threw the shot, you know, and Art trained for thousands of hours each camp, to, you know, to perfect that. So the Gans, and Gans did a, uh, thank you, Scrapbook, Gans did an amazing thing before this fight. And I've never heard anyone do this. Now, if you have, Scrapbook, if you've heard this, please tell me. I'm being serious. There's a great book by William Gildia, who just passed away, which upset me. He wrote a book called The Longest Fight about the Gans-Nelson fight. And it upset me because I never got a chance to talk to him and thank him for the book. It was so brilliantly written. And he was a good friend of another uh, uh, hero author of mine, Jerry Eisenberg, and whose book, Once Were Giants, I just finished reading, which is also great. But he said, before the fight, oh, thank you. Before the, yes, rest in peace. Before the fight, a couple of days before Gans, if not a day before, fought Nelson, him and his friend Harry Lenny had a special ring constructed in, in the ballroom of the hotel they were at. And they fought for 40 rounds, three minute rounds, time rounds. They fought. Because Gans had to know if he could go to distance. He wanted to know how much he would have. This is two days before the fight. And then after he finishes the 40 rounds, he takes a, a five-minute break, has a glass of water. Then they go outside in the broiling sun, and they fight another 20 rounds. They fought 60 rounds. And after that, Gans said he was satisfied. He knew if I had – it was a fight to the finish. He knew if I had – he said, I knew if I had to, I could take this fight 60 rounds. And – that's one thing to say when you're fighting a guy who's your sparring partner and friend. Another thing, you know, when you're fighting a guy who's headbutting you constantly, you can't turn to the referee and say, can you do something? And at times, Gan said, can you tell him to stop? And Siler said, I, you know, I'm sorry. I keep warning him, but he won't stop. 
and he was told by Tex Rickards side, who said, listen, if I, you know, you got to let the fight go. People pay good money. This fight's got to go as long as possible. And Rickard didn't care that a black man was being uh, fouled uh, constantly. What did he care? It meant nothing to him. All he cared about was the money. And so the fight, you were going into the 20 rounds, 21 rounds, 22. Can you imagine this? 105 degree heat, 25 rounds, 26 rounds. And the longer it goes, now Nelson's coming on because Gans is getting a bit tired. And I don't think he was tired necessarily from the environment. He was tired of a guy kicking him and stomping on his foot, kneeing him all the time, punching him in the testicles all the time, headbutting him hundreds of times, biting him, thumbing him, gouging him, uh, running the laces on his face. So it was just too much. And Nelson's starting to come on. But as Nelson comes on, you know, he's winning three, four, five, six rounds. Now, Gans is still getting his shots in. And towards the end, uh, as they near, excuse me, the 30 round mark, Gans is starting to pound him back. Gans finds a second win. And he's starting to be, he's a smart fighter. Smart wins you fights, uh, guts gets you killed. And Gans is just sidestepping Nelson now with his rushes, finds a second win. And he's just hitting him with straight shots you know, beating his nose up even worse, knocking out more teeth, almost tearing his ear off his head and just destroying his face. And they're running out of towels at ringside because Nelson's blood is turning the, not just Gans and other people's trunks red, although I think Gans had green trunks. He's turning the whole canvas red. I mean, people, at this fight, there were women and children and women and children and men breathing because they were throwing up, they were sick. In fact, uh, Gans threw up, I think after the 32nd or 33rd round, because you're fighting in this heat and the fight keeps going and going and Nelson's coming back. You know, he, he's, you know, Gans makes his rally in the late rounds, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32. And then Nelson starts to pour it on and he catches Gans against the ropes. You know, he's got one hand on the ropes and he's pounding him and he's hitting him low and he's hitting him to the body, hitting him to the head. He's he's fouling him at the same time that he's punching him. And, you know, when the referee, when they clinch breaks him up, he spits on Gans' face. He's doing this constantly. And Gans doesn't retaliate. And I think that's not only a credit. I don't think it's a credit to his sense of fair play. I think he thought, I don't want to de degenerate into that level. And it would take more energy out of me to, to uh, foul him back and to spit on him. I'm do, I would be doing what he wants me to do. He'd be getting my go, and I can't do that. Guys that are angry don't fight well. You have to remain calm. That's why Ali went after guys psychologically, because they would get so angry they want to get in there and just kill him rather than following their strategy to a T. And so you're getting into the rounds 30, 32, 33, 34, 35, and he's hitting them. And Gans, you know, Gans is taking the punishment and he's he's firing back. But 35, 36, 37, you know, um, uh, Nelson's coming on. He's hitting him lower. But because Gans at this point is now concentrating on Nelson's one good eye, the right eye, you know, and he's closing it. He's pounding it incessantly. Jab, 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 jab. He's throwing four, five, six jabs, right hand. And Nelson's having a tough time seeing him. Nelson can't see him. He could just make out the shadow. 
you can sense someone's there. Like when you're lying in bed, if your eyes are closed and you're not asleep, you sense when someone comes in the room. So he's grabbing onto him. He's headbutting him, elbowing him on purpose, running the laces over him, you know, hitting him low, hitting him in, hitting him low with his knee, stepping on his feet. And now the crowd is getting riotous. Now they're really angry. Um, the, the, uh, yes, scrapbook, the 60 rounds was in William's book about how he did that before. I'd never heard of it either. I thought, wow, I I'd read the book, but I just reread it last night. I mean, it's a wonderful book. There's millions. I mean, there's so many wonderful boxing books out there. And to me, it's, I'm always sad when I get to the end of a book because it become like a friend and scrapbook. I can't wait to get yours and, and, and personally autographed. So we get into the later rounds and, you know, the fight's over two hours. It's over two hours in over a hundred degree heat. I mean, today, especially of climate change, can you imagine going outside and, and you're just going for a walk with your wife or a friend, you got to go to the store and it says it's uh, 94 out and we'll just walk two or three or four blocks there and walk three or four blocks back. We'll have a hat on, you know, we'll put on sunscreen. It's still onerous. It's still almost impossible to do. I'm 61 with a pacemaker and diabetes. So it's difficult to do that, to actually get there and do that, even for someone who's healthy. These guys, I mean, Gans is in his 30s at this point. He's at, he's past his prime and he's still hanging in there. But Nelson's starting to overpower him. So around 33, 34, 35, 36, Nelson is hitting him, but Nelson's constantly hitting him low. And he's still pounding him to the body, pounding him to the face. And Gans is tired. He's blocking a lot of the shots, but still enough for getting through. And the question here is, who's going to fall first? Gans looks exhausted. And they both look exhausted. And at this point, they, they're just a couple of guys, you know, from around 34, 35 on, if not sooner. They're just leaning on each other like you would lean on a heavy bag after a long workout. And they lean on each other, they stagger around the ring, and they throw a couple of, you know, rabbit punches or a couple of shots to the body. And they're both trying their best, but they have nothing left, you know, because Gans, when Gans did the 60 rounds before with his smart partner, Harry Lenny, you know, his partner doesn't hit him back, right? He just taps him. He's not, he didn't count on being hit in the testicle 200 times, you know, being headbutted over 100 times, being elbowed. 150 times, constantly trying, Nelson trying to thumb him in the eye, constantly stamping on his foot. I mean, you know what it's like when you crack a toenail, how much it hurts and it bleeds. Well, imagine a guy doing that to you for over 30, 35 rounds, stamping on your feet, you know, kicking you, hitting your knee with his knee, constantly hitting you low, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And we get to the 38th round, 39th round, and they're both just staggering around the ring. It's who's going to last it more. Who's got more stamina? Nelson is a, a hurt a lot worse uh, physically than Gans. He's exhausted. He's both eyes are shut. You know, his nose is broken. The left ear is split open. His mouth is, is leaking. I mean, he's bleeding from inside the mouth. He's taken a horrific beating, but he just refuses to quit, and he keeps fouling Gans. 40th round we get to and he's doing it again 41st round and George Seiler keeps hitting him on the head like this saying stop the headbutts and and 
you know, Nelson just says, F you, stop the headbutt. And he, and he said to him, I'm warning you, Oscar, stop the fouling. It's enough. Stop it. And he just says, F you. And he keeps fouling and fouling and fouling. And we get to the 42nd round and ends really quickly. And when you watch the tape, what happens is they're together and they're both sort of leaning on each other, throwing body punches. And Nelson hits him very low. And Gans goes down and rolls on his side. He was writhing in pain. He was writhing in agony. Certainly the athletic supporters back then weren't like they are today, where it's almost like one that a baseball catcher is where, where, where it extends from the top of your groin, uh, you know, all the way back. So you could take a good shot. Still hurts when a big guy hits you. These guys do damage. So uh, he goes down and um, the referee, George Seiler, grabs Nelson, sends him to a corner, and he starts going one, two, and then he looks at him holding his groin, and people are screaming foul, and he just goes like this. He goes, he lifts Gans up, raises his hand, winner by disqualification, and still lightweight champion Joe Gans. Nelson goes berserk. His manager goes berserk. That's not what happened. He faked it. That wasn't a low blow. That wasn't a low blow. He he he's black. He's a coward. He's like all black fighters. I hit him in the stomach and he went down. He faked being hit low. He did that on purpose. I mean, Nelson was yelling this. He couldn't believe he'd been disqualified. He didn't think it was a possibility. So was his file manager, Billy Nolan. And in the paper the next day, he gave a, a long account of it. And he said, you know, uh, that that um, I won. I came out. I destroyed him every round. He never hurt me, which was a complete lie. And I never hit him low. I hit him in the solar plexus, and he went down and quit. And it was pre-planned with the referee. And, you know, George Seiler got angry. He was a very good referee. And Seiler wrote in his paper in Chicago that he said, listen, I could have disqualified him, you know, 40 rounds earlier. I could have disqualified him in the first round. He landed literally thousands of foul blows. He landed, he landed hundreds of low blows deliberately. These were all deliberate fouls. He landed hundreds of elbows. He landed hundreds of forearms. He headbutted Joe Gans hundreds of times. He tried to gouge him with his thumb hundreds of times. He bit him. He kicked him. You know, he put him in a headlock and wrestled him to the ground. He spit on him. He said, you know, Nelson's only lucky that he wasn't disqualified before. It was the most disgraceful display of a fighter that I've ever seen. And so Gans wins. He wins the fight of the century. He gets 11 grand. As I said, he had to pay 10 grand to Larry Sullivan. Uh, Nelson winds up with 35 grand. It's the last great moment of, of Gans's career. Uh, just after the fight, he contracts tuberculosis. He fights Nelson twice more in the, within the next year. Nelson stops him twice, knocks him out twice. He's very... You know, he, he the tuber tuberculosis is already set in, so he's very gaunt. And the trouble to him is making weight, not being overweight, but being so thin and so far under 135 pounds that he has to get something near it to even call it a lightweight contest because you can't come in at 120 or 115. But he, he had trouble keeping, keeping weight on because of the tuberculosis. So he lost to him. He kept fighting a little bit more. And then he just, he, his body let him down. Um, his wife had divorced him. He was running around with another woman at the time of the first Nelson fight. And 
he, um, as I made note of here, he died. He died on um, August tenth, nineteen ten, in Baltimore. He was in Arizona because the warm weather was helping his tuberculosis, and he wanted to come home. So, you know, he was thirty six. You know, and I and the same year that uh, actually nineteen oh eight was when um, uh, his good friend George Dixon died at the age of 37, 38. And Dixon had drunk himself to death, lived in poverty, and the abuse, the racism that these men suffered and the verbal and physical abuse they suffered in and out of the ring was terrible because their managers, Dixon's manager would always slap him around and, and demean him. And same with Al Herford, the way he would treat him. Al Herford, there's a special dung pile in boxing history for guys like Al Herford and Tom O'Rourke, who was the manager of George Dixon, because the way they treated uh, George Dixon and Joe Gans and other black fighters was nothing short of evil. Two years later, Gann uh, or Nelson goes on um, and wins, like, he, excuse me, he won the title uh, within a year from Gans. And then he goes on two years later to fight uh, Ad Wolgast and the Michigan Wildcat and Wolcast beats him worse than Gans did. And at the end of the fight, he can't see. He's done. And Wolgast just beats the hell out of him, beats him again in a rematch. And then Nelson has a series of fights later on where he just becomes a punching bag. Owen Moran knocks him out, the tremendous slugger from Britain. And you can see that one on YouTube. That's a great fight. And Nelson keeps fighting, and eventually he can't get booked anymore. He can't put up a credible fight. So he tries business, which he loses all his money in. You know, when you're a kid, you have those Bozilla clown blow up plastic uh, clown things that you can push and it goes down and then it comes back up. Well, he had one, it was supposed to be hit an N word. You know, it's supposed to be a black guy that you could punch. Didn't sell a single one. Then because of the first world war, he had ones that were made to look like Kaiser Wilhelm. Didn't sell a single one. And so he, he, he would try various comebacks. He would lose all his money. He'd get married. His wife would divorce him. And he finally got married, uh, I think, in the 30s or 40s. But because his money was running out, uh, he was in court all the time because he owned a lot of properties in Illinois. But he couldn't pay the upkeep on them. So people would go to court and he would just lose the property. He couldn't pay the upkeep. Properties are worth money, but he couldn't pay to go to court even to defend himself. So all the money he put in these properties was lost. And he kept losing more money and he would live in a hotel room with his wife and then they downgrade to another hotel and another hotel. Finally, they just get to a flea bag hotel on Skid Row. And finally, you know, his wife, his wife passes away. He's by himself. And he got to a point in the early 50s. He didn't know who he was. He didn't know where he was. And he was just indigent walking along the street. And uh, some people would help him out. Uh, some people from the boxing industry got together and they got him help. They put him in a mental institution. He died there in 1954, February 7th, from severe pugilistica dementia. Uh, all the punches had caught up with him. He, he uh, was indigent, um, homeless. No one, almost no one from the boxing world showed up at his funeral because he was such a reviled character and no one black and white forgave him for the bigotry and racism that he heaped upon not just joe gans but other black fighters as well so he was a dark stain 
on the history of boxing. He was a dirty fighter, and I think any good lightweight would have wiped the floor with him today. In fact, if it was Joe Gans in his prime, I don't see battling Nelson going more than a couple of rounds. So you can get the Nelson fight with Joe Gans, the first fight, and I think the other fights too, but the first fight, 42 rounds. Watch it on YouTube because it's a fantastic fight. Scrapbook, I love you. I can't thank you enough for being here. Um, and in within the month, um, I've spoken with Eric Boyce, my producer here, makes all this possible, and it's Father Graham. And I'm going to do a devote a podcast to Reuben Hurricane Carter. And it's the myth. Actually, it's the truth about the myth of Reuben Hurricane Carter. There's a great book out by a lawyer uh, written about what really happened and all these things about Hurricane Carter being a war hero. Not true. He was dishonorably discharged. So I'm not looking to hurt the man or take the man down, just looking to tell the truth about the Hurricane Carter story as I see it based on evidence that I have. Um, thank you for watching. Go watch this fight on YouTube. Uh, it's great having you here on Sunday to all my Jewish friends. L'Shon Tova, Happy New Year. May your new year be sweet and blessed. And my name is Lou Eisen. I hope you had a great time. And we will see you next week on Ring Talk. Bye-bye.